Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 is where we are this morning. We spent last Sunday looking at what the Bible says about discipleship, looking, about, uh, looking at what the Bible says about equipping and how we are to be the body of Christ. We are all more broken and more lacking than we could possibly imagine. And that's why God has given us gifts in the body to minister to each other, to equip where we are broken, to equip where we are lacking, and to encourage our hearts to grow in godliness, to grow in Christ-likeness. How are we going to do that? We're going to stare at the words of Jesus. That's how we're going to do that. We're going to grow together. We're going to minister the Word of God together. And as we are prepared and encouraged and equipped by the Word of God, then we can go and equip others. And so we're going to start our summer series this Sunday by introducing the parables and what they are all about and why they matter for us today. Why are we doing this series? We're going to start doing a series on the parables. We're going to stare at the parables of Jesus. Why are we doing it? Three reasons. Number one, there is simply nothing better than sitting at the feet of Jesus and having him teach. There's just nothing better than that. And that's exactly what we're going to do this summer. We're going to sit at the feet of Jesus and have him teach us. The parables instinctively force us to press into what he is saying to find the meaning. We can't just sit aloof and think, oh, I'll pick up on the truth. No, we need to press in. So every Sunday we're going to go on treasure hunts together. We're going to dive deep into God's word and look at these parables together and see the glory of God in these stories. The second reason is because many people have misconceptions about why parables even exist. And hopefully as we teach through them, Lord willing, we will be able to see the truth of why these parables are given by our Savior and be able to teach others the truth of God's Word. So number one, we want to sit at the feet of Jesus. Number two, we have a misconception about parables. We want to make sure we get parables right. Number three, many are familiar with parables. Many people are familiar with parables. Some are not. And some parables are more familiar than others. Sometimes when we come to a parable and we go, I know this one, it's familiar to me, I understand. Something in our heart, something in our brains just kind of tunes out. Oh, I already know this. Some of the most dangerous words ever. Oh, I already know this. So if there are familiar parables that we're going to be going through, Lord willing, we will see spiritual truths that maybe we are missing that are behind the parables. Maybe we're going to be going through some parables that are less familiar to us, and there's probably a reason why they're less familiar to us. Some of these parables are very difficult to understand. So we're going to just see all of them, but hopefully, Lord willing, we will break through that familiarity. We'll hit refresh on some of these parables that we know so well, we're so familiar with. And we'll dive in together into God's Word sitting at the feet of Jesus, understanding exactly why he's saying what he's saying, the way he's saying it, and not growing accustomed to hearing the gospel, not growing familiar with gospel language, but being ever impressed, ever mindful of the grace of our God in these passages. What is a parable? A parable is a, a small, short story. Some are longer than others, but it's a, a story of comparison. Literally, the word Parable comes from two Greek words, para mean, meaning beside and balo meaning to throw. So literally the word parable means to throw beside, to come alongside something. It's a comparison, uh, imaging on the other side what the reality is with a story that gives us the meaning of those realities. We even have a word similar to that in English, a parabola in 
Mathematics is a curve where one side mirrors the other. So we have an understanding of what a parable looks like, even with that English word. They're stories that draw truth from a commonplace reality and give us a deeper understanding of spiritual truth. Some parables are very long. Some parables are less than even a verse. They're very diverse. But very simply, a parable is, to use one author's definition, an ingeniously simple word picture illuminating a profound spiritual lesson. So it's a simple word picture that gives us a greater understanding of a profound spiritual lesson. So we have why we're studying this. We have what parables are. Where are they found? Where do we find the the parables of Jesus? They're only found in the Synoptic Gospels. They're not found in the Gospel of John, so we really are pressing pause on our study through the Gospel of John. Um, We are going to only be looking at the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew and Luke have the most. Mark only has six parables. And only one of those parables that Mark gives is given only in Mark. So there's only one unique parable to Mark, and everything else is found in Matthew and Luke. There are roughly about 40 of them. It depends on how you would count them and define them. But there's roughly 40 parables that Jesus gives in the Synoptic Gospels. Luke tends to be more detailed in his explanation. Think of Luke 15 with the parable of the prodigal son. That's the longest of all the parables. Um, We have detailed. Luke kind of writes his gospel in color. Matthew's a lot more in black and white, so his are very, very uh, succinct, very short. And we are going to look at both as we go through this series. The last question that we have to ask before we dive into the Word of God is why parables? Why did Jesus teach in parables? We're going to look at Matthew 13 this morning and, and see Matthew 12 leading up to Matthew 13. But in Matthew, Jesus speaks in a very straightforward way. Think of Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, there is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are all those beatitudes, all of these you've heard it said. Don't commit murder. I tell you the truth that if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, you've already committed murder with him in your heart. So very straightforward. And then all of a sudden he starts speaking in these these movements that have more of an illustrative, uh, analogous way of speaking. Why? Why does he change? There's a shift. We don't see him speaking like this in the earlier chapters of Matthew. And here's where most people assume that what Jesus is doing is he's taught so clear, so straightforward in the earlier years of his ministry, and people don't understand what he's saying, so he's going to try and speak in a way that they can understand. He's going to give illustrations. He's going to make his teaching more accessible, more easy to understand, maybe even more comfortable for his hearers to be able to chew on. And while there's a nugget of truth in that statement, The reality of that statement is not entirely true at all. And as we'll go along this summer, we will see very clearly that that's not the reason Jesus spoke in parables. In fact, if Jesus is speaking in parables to illustrate the truth of what he's been saying, then he's a terrible teacher because every single parable needs an explanation. Nobody after a parable is said by Jesus goes, that makes sense. Thanks for illuminating my understanding of what you said before. I had no idea what you're saying, and now I totally get it. Even the first parable that he's going to say, Jesus is going to teach it, and the disciples are going to say, what do you mean? I have no idea. So if these are just for illustrations, they're really bad illustrations. If you have to explain your illustration, you are not a good teacher. So while they do clarify certain things for those who want to hear, parables have the opposite effect for those who do not want to hear. 
And that's exactly why Jesus starts speaking in parables. He has given truth after truth. Everyone who has heard him speak knows the truth of the gospel. And they have come to a place where either they receive that truth or they have rejected that truth. And he says, about halfway into his earthly ministry, he says, okay, I'm going to start speaking in parables so that those who want to receive more truth from me will get it in this story. And those who don't want to receive more truth from me, they won't receive any truth in this story. They'll just hear a crazy man sharing stories and they'll say, see, I knew he was crazy. I don't want to have anything to do with it. The symbols that Jesus shares will hide the truth from anyone who does not desire to seek out the meaning, to trust the messenger, and to press into his message. So let's listen to Jesus' first parable that he gives in Matthew 13, starting in verse 1. That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell beside the road. Birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they didn't have much soil. Immediately they sprung up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. And he who has ears, let him hear. God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear. By your grace, many of us are familiar with your word. What what an amazing gift that is. Many of us have grown up in church all of our lives. And that is a blessing beyond measure. Think of people groups in the world that don't even have a physical copy of your word yet. They are waiting for your word to be translated into their language. And God, I pray that you would raise up men and women, even from our church, to go to those people, to give them the word of God. There's just no more precious gift because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. And so, Father, we're grateful But we know there is a danger that comes with familiarity. And we want to press through that danger. We don't want to ever think that we have arrived at some understanding or some knowledge. In fact, we want to go back and relearn all the things that we have learned. God, make us honest with ourselves to be able to see that your your word would show a spotlight into our souls to, to show us, hey, you have a great understanding of God's word, but you are not living it out at all. And knowledge apart from living it out simply puffs up, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8. We don't want to be puffed up. We want love. We want to live out the words that are written here. So give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. May we press in even this morning to see Jesus. And may the gospel awaken new affections, greater affections. That would change us from the inside out. Help us this day. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to build wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So why is there a change in his teaching? In chapter 13, verse 3, he speaks many things in parables, and I believe that the reaction 
would have been one of confusion. In fact, the disciples, verse 10, they come and they say to him, why are you speaking this way? Why do you speak in parables? To get the answer to that question, we have to go back to chapter 12 and do just a quick survey through chapter 12. There are four main conflicts that occur in the middle of Jesus' earthly ministry such that he moves from speaking very straightforward, plain language to parables. Four main conflicts. And I want to just take them one at a time. The first conflict is in chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. There's a conflict over the Sabbath picking of grains, over Sabbath work. Verse 1, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry? He and his companions, they entered the house of God. They ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for them to eat, nor for those with him, but for priests alone. Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known, so twice have you not read, and that that is saying you have read, you just didn't understand. Have you not read? No, you have read, but you didn't get it. And then the third time he says that is in verse 7. If you had known what this means. Oh, you know the verse, you can quote the verse. I desire compassion, not sacrifice, but you don't know what it means. You would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus and his disciples are walking, they're hungry, they pick the uh, heads of the grain, they start eating. It's totally acceptable in God's economy of the Sabbath, totally unacceptable in the Pharisees' economy of the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees get angry at Jesus and say, how dare you let your disciples do what they're doing? Jesus tells them, you're, you're misunderstanding the point. You, you are pressing a law when the point of those laws is to point to Jesus. I am here. You're missing me. Something greater than the temple is here. He's going to say later, something greater than Solomon is here. It's all about me, Jesus is saying, and you're missing it. You're missing the entire point. Now, this conflict seems random, quote-unquote. They're just walking along. The Pharisees see Jesus and his disciples. Hey, you're not allowed to do that. And here's where Jesus starts to ramp up. This escalates very quickly. Because in verse 9, the second conflict happens. Departing from there, Jesus went into their synagogue. Now, we know the Sadducees owned the temple. The Pharisees owned the synagogues. This is the Pharisees' home turf. Luke chapter 6, verse 6 says this is on a different Sabbath. So the Pharisees here are going to see Jesus enter their synagogue. Mark chapter 3 says that it's Jesus who initiates the conversation. Verse 10, a man is there whose hand is withered, and they question Jesus asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. If we marry that and zip it up with the other synoptic gospels, we see that Jesus is the first person to say, Am I allowed to do what I want to do to heal this man? Just think about this setting. Jesus shows up at their home turf, walks into their church, as it were, sees a man with a withered hand, brings him up front in front of every single person there at the church service, and stares at the Pharisees and says, Hey, am I allowed to heal this man? Picks up his arm and says, Look, it's withered. I can heal it. Am I allowed to heal it? Think of the Pharisees' dilemma there. Who else is more than likely present in the synagogue at that moment? Probably this man's friends and family. So if the Pharisees say, no, you're not allowed to do that. And the friends and the family, they hear that and they know Jesus is able to do it. And you're denying us 
the privilege of seeing our friend, our, our brother, our son, father perhaps, healed. Jesus has pinned them. Because if they say, no, no, you're not allowed to do that, not allowed to heal him, all of the people that love this man are going to defect and walk away from the Pharisees. But if the Pharisees don't stay true to their law, and they say, yeah, you can absolutely heal the man, the people are still going to defect. Wait a second, you Pharisees are hypocritical. You say you're not allowed to do these things on the Sabbath, and now you're saying you're allowed to do these. You have no law. They wouldn't follow them. So the Pharisees are stuck. And Jesus says, I don't need an answer from you. I'm going to go ahead and do it. He says, verse 11, What man is there among you who has sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath and he won't take a hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a, a man than a sheep? It is lawful. You're not answering the question. They were pinned. They kept silent. Jesus says, I'll answer my own question. Yes, it's lawful. And if you have a system of laws that doesn't allow you to do it, your system is broken. It's ungodly. So he says, the man, stretch out, verse 13, your hand. He stretched it out and it was restored to normal like other, like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. That has escalated very quickly. It was, we've got a conflict of Sabbath picking of the heads of grain and we don't like what you're doing. And now the second conflict, we want you dead. Why? They, they have just been one-upped by Jesus, as it were. Jesus asked them a question, and these men are supposed to be the holders and the keepers of the law of God, and they're unable to answer this question. And he shows them, you know nothing. And they want to kill him. They want to kill him. Verse 15, Jesus is aware of this. Um, we tend to read Jesus' omniscience into the passage, like, oh, he... He could see into their hearts and see into their minds. I don't think you had to be omniscient to understand they wanted him dead. They're angry. They're seething. And Jesus is aware and he withdrew. And many followed him. And he heals them all. And he warned them not to tell who he was. And I want to be known just as a miracle worker or a healer. I want to be known as Savior. The one who cleanses you from sin, not just your sickness. Verse 17, all of this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. This is Isaiah chapter 42. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon you and he shall proclaim justice to all the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off. A smoldering wick he will not put out until he leaves justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is to fulfill scripture. Jesus is going to be this man that is going to bring salvation to the world. The Jews don't like that. The Pharisees, as we've seen in the Gospel of John, John uses the word Jew to refer to religious leaders. They don't like this. They don't want him to be Messiah. They want their laws to save them. And thus, they want to save themselves. We made these laws. We keep these laws. We are our own savior. Things are escalating. In the end of that passage in Isaiah chapter 42, there's a description of what he's going to do. He's not only going to bring all the Gentiles together and uh, bring salvation to all people, he is going to also heal. And he talks about, in Isaiah 42, healing, uh, bringing freedom to those who are oppressed, healing the blind, healing the lame, healing the mute. And we're going to see that that's going to happen in the next conflict, third conflict. So we've got the Sabbath breaking in the fields. Number two, we've got the Sabbath breaking in the synagogue and 
number three, conflict number three, chapter 12, verses 22 through 37, we have the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin. Verse 22, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. This poor man is having a really bad day. He's demon-possessed, he's blind, and he's mute, and Jesus heals him. Why does verse 22 come right after verse 21? Because there was a prophecy made in Isaiah 42 that the Messiah is going to do insanely messianic things, and this is one of them. The, the prophecy of the Messiah is that he's going to come and he's going to heal demon-possessed people. He's going to cast out demons, bring freedom to the slave, and uh, bring freedom to those who are oppressed. The Messiah is going to heal those that can't see and give them sight, heal those that can't speak so that he can release their tongue to speak praises. All of this is prophesied in Isaiah 42, and anybody reading Matthew who knows Isaiah 42 would know that that's the prophecy that comes right after verse 21. I think Matthew is very clearly showing us Jesus has done something by healing one man who has all three of these prophesied ailments that Jesus heals. He's demon-possessed, he's blind, he's mute, and he heals him. He speaks, he sees, and he's in his right mind. Verse 23, all the crowds are amazed. They're saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? What are they saying? They're saying, he has just done something that proves he's the Messiah. What he just did was prophesied. Only the Messiah was going to do that. He's clear than the Messiah. But who are they asking this question of? They're looking at the Pharisees. To the Pharisees, they turn. To their religious leaders, to their pastors, to their shepherds, they turn and they say, what you have told us, this man's not the Messiah. He just did something that only the Messiah has been prophesied to do. How can he not be? They turn to the Pharisees and they say, help us. We don't know who this man is. It seems pretty clear to us who he is. Verse 24, when the Pharisees heard this, they got in their little holy huddle and they say, well, it's happened again. What do we do? This is similar. I'm sure some Pharisees go, this is just like that synagogue thing. We've just been pinned. How are we, what are we supposed to do? And so they say, we know the answer. They don't believe this answer at all. This is one of the dumbest answers given. And Jesus is going to just say, that is illogical on six different levels. He's going to give them six arguments to say that makes no sense. But here they say, uh, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the, power, the, the ruler of demons. He has the power of demons in himself to cast out demons. And here, verse 25, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How is this kingdom going to stand? If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So you're doing it too. This is nonsense. Verse 30, he says, He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. In verse 31, he says, Therefore... Therefore, because I just did something that proved so clearly that I'm the Messiah. I just did something that shows everyone I am the Messiah. And you, in your determined disbelief, you will not believe me. Therefore, I say to you, any sin, and even blasphemy, shall be forgiven people. But if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, that will never be forgiven. This is a huge issue the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What is it? Very simply, in context here, it is Jesus doing a miracle by the power of the Spirit. That's how he did his miracles. 
He did them under the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he did a miracle. He did an insanely messianic miracle. And the crowd said, no, we don't want to believe that. And they turned to their Pharisees. They said, should we believe it? The Pharisees said, no. And they come up with a blasphemy against the Spirit. The Spirit did the miracle. And we are saying that it wasn't the Spirit who did the miracle. It was a demon or Satan himself that did the miracle. So what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What's the unpardonable sin? Is it a specific sin? No, I don't think so. Very clearly, I think that everyone who is in hell has committed this. They are determined, no matter what God shows me, no matter what Jesus demonstrates to me about who he is, I will never believe. Now, can that be forgiven in this life? I believe so, and I believe that it can be forgiven by looking at the Apostle Paul, by looking at how he was forgiven by Jesus. All of, There are so many different examples in the Scriptures that prove that, but what Jesus is saying is if you stay in this state of determined disbelief, there's no possibility that you can be saved. There's no possibility. Verse 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it can be forgiven. But if you speak against the Holy Spirit, if you say, no matter what Jesus shows me about himself, I will never believe, never believe, never believe, and you die in that state, you will not be forgiven. He goes on to talk about fruit, talk about your actions clearly prove you're not saved and you don't want any of the teaching that I'm giving to you. And that rounds out the third conflict. So we've got Sabbath keeping with the picking of the grains. We've got the synagogue, Sabbath keeping, and now we have the unpardonable sin. Everything is escalating. Finally, the fourth conflict. Just quickly. The Pharisees come, verse 38. I think if we, if we read this in context, Jesus just said something incredibly difficult to hear. Just imagine being a Pharisee, and he says, you can't be forgiven of what you just did. Whoa. I think one Pharisee maybe in this moment humbles himself, and he goes up to him and he says, teacher, we want to see a sign. Now, maybe there's a motive that's incorrect here. But I think right off the heels of you're condemned, I think they want to prove to everybody, no, we're not. We, we think this guy's a good teacher. So he says, teacher, rabbi, we want to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered and said, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign will be given except for the, the sign of Jonah the prophet, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so it will be the Son of Man three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Drop down to verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up with his generation at the judgment, will condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something's great, something greater than Solomon is here. You're not going to get a sign. I've already given you all of these different signs that you've denied. You're asking me for more signs, and yet you refuse to believe the sign that I've already given. No more signs will be given. Even when he rises from the dead, the Pharisees say, oh, his disciples stole the body. No more sign will be given. And then finally, he's speaking, verse 46. And in verse 47, somebody says, behold, your mother and your brother, they're standing outside, and Jesus says, who are my mother? who's my bro- mother and who are my brothers? They're those who do the will of my Father. My family is made up of people who hear my teaching and do what my Father has sent me to teach you and to tell you to do. And from that day forward, if you drop down to verse 34 of chapter 13, all these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden 
since the foundation of the world. From that moment forward, those four conflicts, uh, Sabbath breaking number one in the grain field, Sabbath, Sabbath breaking number two in the synagogue, the unpardonable sin, messianic miracle done, they reject it, they say the devil did the miracle, and then finally, desiring signs, and Jesus says no. I mean, even that in and of itself is a parable of what's going to happen. You're not getting more signs. I've already given you enough signs, you're not believing those. So therefore, I'm not going to give you any new signs. In the same way, I'm not going to give you any new truth. I'm not teaching you any new truth. You didn't believe the truth that I gave to you. Therefore, I'm not going to teach you any new truth. So this helps round out the answer to the question, why parables? Parables are divine judgment against those who would oppose him. Drop down to verse 10 in chapter 13. When the disciples come and they say, why are you speaking this way? Why are you speaking in parables? Jesus answered them and said, to you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been granted. Whoever has, more shall be given, and he who will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. That's the answer. Why are you speaking in parables? Because they have seen for so long and they are not seen. And therefore, this is not only divine judgment, this is divine grace. There is grace in what Jesus is saying. They're going to be held accountable for the truth that they heard that they failed to live out. They will be held accountable for it on the day of judgment. Just like we all will. We will be held accountable for the truth that we know. And so Jesus says, I'm not going to give you any more truth that will condemn you on the day of judgment. I'm going to hide the truth so that you only hear a crazy man telling a crazy story. You don't hear truth. Therefore, I'm going to give you grace even in this form of divine judgment. Verse 14, Jesus says, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but you won't understand. You'll keep on seeing, but you won't perceive. Your hearts become dull. Your ears scarcely hear. You've closed your eyes. Otherwise, they would see. You've done it. You've closed your eyes. You've stopped up your ears. You will not believe. Therefore, I'm not giving you any more truth. But to those that have heard, have received, have seen and truly seen, I'm going to tell a story that has truth inside of it that forces them to press into it. And as they press in, they will hear more truth. So in short, Jesus' parables had a clear twofold purpose. To hide truth from self-righteous, self-satisfied people, and to reveal truth to those eager to learn from their master. Now, all of that is an introduction uh, to the reality of this sermon. We have to ask the question, do we see without seeing? Do we hear without hearing? Because if we are like the Pharisees and we see but we don't see, then this entire summer you're going to see the parables, you're going to hear them clearly communicated, and it's not going to make any sense. It's not going to make any difference in your life. Parables are designed to stir those whose antenna are tuned to Jesus' frequency and to absolutely confound those whose antennas are not. So the question is, who are you tuning into? You will not tune to the frequency of Jesus if you do not see, like we talked about last week, yourself as incredibly broken and incredibly lacking. You won't tune into Jesus' frequency. Notice the Pharisees. They are those who heard but didn't hear. What is the main characteristic of Pharisees? Well, let's look at a couple. Remember the Sabbath day picking the heads of the grain. 
They accused Jesus, hostile accusing, rigid judgmentalism, a my way or the highway. Remember, is this lawful for you to do? Uh, no, that's not lawful for you to do. We have our rules and we're holier than you. Put all of these together. What characterizes Pharisees? It's pride. The Pharisees never saw their brokenness or their lacking. Uh, remember Luke 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not like that man. That is just the worst statement ever. Pharisees only say that statement, and humble people can never say that statement. Truly broken, humble people can't say, man, I'm so glad I'm not like them, because they will say, I'm worse than them. I'm the chief of sinners. So, Pharisees don't receive the word, because they don't come humble and broken to the word. They're not teachable. They don't live out exactly what Jesus has told them to live out. Why? Because they have no need to. They don't see themselves as lacking in anything. Oh, I need to live differently. Where do I need to live differently? No, I'm living perfect. In a perfect way, nothing needs to be changed. That's why Jesus is going to teach. The very first parable he teaches, parable of soils, Matthew 13. He says, you have a type of heart that is hearing the word. This isn't an issue of the messenger teaching in an incorrect way. This is an issue of your heart not being ready to receive. So his question to the Pharisees and to the crowds and to us this morning is, where is your heart? Are you ready to receive the word of God? Are you humble? Are you broken? Are you ready to receive the word? I think the the best question we can ask is, how do I know if I'm ready to receive the word? And what would Jesus say in that parable? How do you know if your soil is ready to receive the word of God? Fruit. Are you living differently because you are doing what God is telling you to do? If you are bearing 160, 30-fold, then it's clear you have a heart that has received the word and is changed. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Remember our three reasons for studying the parables? We want to sit at the feet of Jesus. We want to stare at his glory. We want to see the reason why Jesus spoke in parables. And hopefully, Lord willing, you've seen that a little bit more clearly this morning. And number three, we want to dive past the familiarity factor. And press into the gospel-centeredness of each parable. We want to see Jesus. The Pharisees saw Jesus. They heard Jesus. And yet they didn't see him and they didn't hear him. Can you name the word that is imprinted on a penny to the left of Abraham Lincoln? You know which way Lincoln's face is facing. If you flip it over on the tail side... There's an image, and if you say it's of a building, you failed. What building is it? To the right of the building, there's initials. What are those initials? Whose initials are they? If I lined up change, and I asked you to identify a a penny, you and I obviously know what a penny looks like. We know that. Some of us might see pennies every day. But I doubt anybody could answer all of the questions that I just shared. Why? We don't really look at what we already know. We don't study familiar things. In fact, the very fact that we consider something familiar kind of stifles any impulse to actually dig deeper and to study it. I already know that. I think the gospel in our minds is very similar to that penny. One of the dangers of the way that we typically live life as believers is that we look at the gospel without seeing it. 
we read the Bible every morning, Lord willing. And while we read, we don't really see. While looking, we don't really behold. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Turn there just really briefly. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul tells us how we are to be transformed. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 18. We with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. You can look without beholding. There's a danger. That's why parables are dangerous. You can look without beholding, but you cannot behold without looking. That's why we're gathering together on Sundays. That's why we gather during the middle of the week. We are gathering not to acquire more information, not to inquire inquire more knowledge, but to live out what we have been given, to be transformed. We want to behold the glory of the Lord. But, oh, we are so quick to tend to stick to the knowledge aspect and not the transformation aspect, right? Let's be honest. It's so much easier to grow in our knowledge than it is to actually grow in life transformation. Why do we tend not to dive deep into real life issues? Why do we tend to leave things more ethereal? And that's why we're trying to kick against that with our small groups on Thursday night. How is this actually living itself out in your life? Why do we tend to do that? I think if, it's, if we're honest, we talked about this on Thursday night. We love our personal space. We love our personal space. But one of the first lessons that I learned as a disciple of Jesus is that Jesus doesn't really care about my personal space. He doesn't. He invades it constantly. So much so that I'm just kicking against it. Stop. Don't look at me. I don't want you to see that. Just think of the, the woman at the well. Remember... She probably didn't want anybody talking to her, which is why she went to go get water at high noon. And Jesus shows up and says, hey, go call your husband. And she says, I don't have one. And he goes, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I knew that. I also know that you're living with somebody who isn't your husband. And I know that you've had five husbands before that and you have been unfaithful. And she's, excuse me, <laughs> did, did I allow you to to gain entrance into my life. We love our personal space. Don't, don't touch that. That was for me. That's private. We love our personal space. Jesus, however, loves exposing us. He loves it. But here's the key. He loves to expose the shame that's in our hearts and in our lives so that he can cover it with grace. He loves to expose the shame that's in our heart, the sin that we want to hide. He wants to bring it out to the surface so that he can cover it with grace. He doesn't want to shame us. He wants to cover it. It's so interesting how often the areas of our inner lives that we strive most to hide from Jesus are the ones he's most interested. No, don't take that. Excuse me, I want that. No, don't take that. Excuse me, I want that. It's because he wants to cover it with grace. Adam and Eve, remember in the garden, they tried to cover themselves once they knew that they had sinned, covered themselves with the fig leaves. And and God says, those won't work. And he wants to uncover them. Why? Not to expose their shame, but so that he can cover them with a sacrifice. This is the point of what it means to follow Jesus. Constantly uncovering sin, allowing Jesus to do the work to cover it and become like him. But much like a penny, we just keep stepping over his glory on a sidewalk. Just, eh, I'm familiar with it. We don't even pick it up and put it in our pocket. 
Why? Why do we struggle to see without seeing? Why do we struggle to hear while we are hearing the truth of the gospel? I think one, there's many reasons. I think one is because we really aren't captivated by God's glory anymore. There's so many other things in this world that are pretty glorious. Phones, movies, music, television, Netflix. We're so easily captivated such that when we eventually pull the gospel out of our pockets, as it were, it seems boring. It seems dull. How do we fix that? How do we go into this summer to change the, the heart that would hear without hearing, that would see without seeing? How do we fix it? We can flip a phrase around. Don't just do something. Sit there. Don't just do something. Don't just busy yourself with things. Sit in the presence of God. Sit with other believers in fellowship. Don't be the Martha that's running around busying themselves with ministry, busying themselves with things that will keep their attention off of Jesus. Ministry itself isn't the end. Jesus is the end. So, we desire at CVC to spend an entire summer staring at the glory of God. To do exactly what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3. To hear and hear. To see and see. We want to be blown away by the glory of God. We want to be transformed by staring at the glory that God has given to us. Can I encourage you? As we go into the summer months, the gospel has been given to those who are abundantly knowledgeable of how broken and needy they are. This is one of the reasons why we struggle as Christians. One of the reasons why we struggle to hear and truly hear is because we think being a good Christian means living like you're a good Christian, doing your best to look like a good Christian. Doing your best to look like a good Christian makes you usually a very bad Christian. How can you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps when you're not wearing boots. If you come lacking before Jesus, you're trying as best you can. I can do it. You can't do it. We all think that we know what will do the job of making us holy, and that's us doing the job of making us holy. It's impossible. This is why the good news is good news. This is why the gospel that we're going to hear every Sunday is a message that is uh, just enthralling to a heart that's broken. The gospel does not say do. The gospel says done. The gospel does not give us instructions and announce announce to us that we need to get to work. The gospel says it's finished. Now come and rest. Stare at the glory that I have given to you until you truly see it. Charles Spurgeon was just a little kid when he got stuck in a snowstorm. It forced him into a little Methodist chapel where a guest preacher was filling in at the last minute for the pastor who couldn't make it there. And he got up and he opened his Bible to Isaiah 45, verse 22. And as Charles Spurgeon slipped into the pews, he listened. The text says, Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Spurgeon says in his autobiography, The man was not a great preacher. (laughs) He presumed him to be a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort. No offense to a shoemaker or a tailor. Spurgeon actually says in his book, He was feeble and stupid. Spurgeon needs a little bit of help in being graceful. But he said, I recall the man's invitation. 
This is what the pastor said. Now look and don't take a deal of pains at all. It ain't lifting your foot. It ain't lifting your finger. It's just look. A man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. So look unto me and be saved. That was the morning that Spurgeon heard the gospel that he had heard so many times before, but finally heard it. He looked and he finally saw. And that's what saved him. So this summer, as we go through the parables, let's not be those that would hear without hearing. Let's not be Pharisees that would be prideful to think we don't have areas in our lives that need help. Let's not be those that would be untouchable in those areas. Let's lay open and bare before the word and let God change us as we stare at the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Father, we want to do that this summer. We want to stare at glory. We want to be transformed by glory, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. We want to be changed from the inside out. And so we are going to do just that. Even this day, we are going to stare at the gospel. We're going to stare at glory, at the love that you have given to us through Jesus Christ. We want to be changed. We don't want to busy ourselves with things, even good things, if it means pulling us away from the glory of Jesus Christ. We want to see and to savor Jesus. God, teach us to do that, even now. Break us, make us humble, and change us from one degree of glory to the next. Transform us from the inside out. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.